0: Good morning. Good morning. I can do better than that. Good morning. Good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, I am excited this morning to introduce you to, uh, to or introduce our guest speaker, guest preacher, because um, we don't, you know, we don't really just speak here and preach, you know, preach. Um, so uh, I, Bill Dumphy is from Grace Point, um, and you can come on up, Bill, when you're, when you're ready. Um, Bill is from Grace Point Church in Williamsburg, so Acts 29 uh, Network is the network that we're a part of, and they are a, a, a network church, so to speak, and they planted in 2018, and over the years, Bill uh, has become a pretty good friend of mine, and I'm very thankful for him, and and the, I've been actually trying to uh, get him to come speak here for a while now. Yes. He's here, um, and so I'm thankful for that, and so uh, anyway, let's uh, just welcome him. Um, I'm excited for the word that he has for us, and without further ado, I'll let you have it, buddy. All right. All right. Give him a hand.
1: Thanks for the warm welcome. Beautiful venue, beautiful people. Um, I, I must have got too much Holy Spirit this morning because it blew my hair completely away. <laughs> Sorry for the glare. You know, I shined it up good, fresh this morning, but I uh, brought a friend of mine from our congregation, a brother of mine uh, who's been Before we planted, went to all the churches that we spoke at. He came faithfully with his wife, and uh, so he's with me today. My wife is serving in kids' ministry today, so she she couldn't come. As any of you who are volunteering kids, you know that's the never-ending need for volunteers. So five kids' classrooms open. We seem to be growing organically. We've got ten expectant mothers, so told you "You guys have to evangelize. You can't just grow by having babies. It doesn't work that way. It's a good problem, but. All right, well, let's, uh, let's get started. Um, I will pray for us in a moment, but just wanna, I haven't always lived in Virginia. I grew up in Maryland, but I went to West Virginia universities where I got my, I got a bachelor's and master's in mechanical engineering. So I'm, I'm a nerd. I love engineering and I love theology. So just fusion of nerddom. So during my senior year at West Virginia, my roommate, who was my best friend, invited a good friend, Dana, to visit him from New Jersey. And she brought her college roommate and her best friend, Tracy, with her for the weekend. We had a blast hanging out together. I've never, I don't remember laughing so much when, when we did it. We, Tracy and I specifically hit it off well, and it was the beginning of a great friendship. And then, then a few months later, spring of 1992, yes, I'm old, our Easter break was approaching. Now my buddies and I had the opportunity to visit Radford University, which at the time was 70% women. and. We were very motivated to take this trip because we were young men who liked girls, okay? It was was pretty simple. But instead of joining my friends for this trip, I decided to visit this girl in New Jersey. And it was during that visit our friendship blossomed into something more than friendship and was the beginning of something great. And I began to pursue her. And fortunately, she responded favorably and reciprocated in that relationship. And we began a long-distance relationship. Now it was clear to me that at that point... Very early, that I had a genuine love for her, and she had that love for me. She was the one for me. So she reciprocated shortly after we were engaged. It was a short courtship. Now, after finishing my degree, I began my graduate studies at NC State, and I ended up rooming with my childhood best friend, and he counseled me that I was making a huge, epic mistake, a mistake of epic proportions to get married so young. After all, I was 22 years old. I hadn't even had a job or experienced adulting yet. How was I going to get married? So so I couldn't possibly be ready for this step. Now, I didn't listen to him. I moved forward in my relationship, and I commuted nine hours every weekend to visit Tracy. Now, that was no small feat while trying to get an advanced degree and do research and all this other fun stuff. It was, in fact, for me, an impossible feat. So I transferred back to the mountain state of West Virginia and uh, was a few hours closer to Tracy. Now, on July 10th of 1993... I married this girl named Tracy, and who's now my bride of, of nearly twenty-nine years. And this Easter it'll be thirty years since we, we started dating and began this faithful journey together. So so despite my best friend's warnings, I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that she was the one for me, and I pursued her relentlessly until we became one. Has it been thirty years of rainbows, roses, and unicorns and all that other happy stuff? No, but it's been great. Uh, I I was never so sure of anything, and I was right. So year after year, we confirm and reaffirm our relationship with one another. Sometimes implicitly, sometimes explicitly through actions, but we reconfirm it. The way I pursued Tracy is is a reminder to me of the way God pursued me, with one big difference. Tracy was lovely when I pursued her. But I wasn't so lovely, and yet God still pursued me, even in the ugliness of my sin and rebellion. When he grabbed hold of me, I was certain it was him. In an instant, he made me his very own, transforming me from spiritual death to vibrant spiritual life. But, but just like any relationship, my relationship with, with God is not perfection, roses, and rainbows either. The difference is God's commitment to me is unwavering. It's my commitment that falters and fails at times. So look, the Christian life is one of constant self-examination to confirm that we are indeed within the faith. We don't have to doubt our assurance, but we have to confirm that we are indeed in the faith. So in the verses just prior to the passage we will study today, which is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, in verses 3 to 4, Peter says... His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So so after declaring all that God has promised... For those who have been called and believe, Peter will now share the implications of those promises in our passage today. He says, to those of us who profess and believe to follow Christ, to be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. Well, we must examine ourselves to see if we exhibit the qualities of one who has been called. Now certainly we will not exhibit these qualities perfectly. I haven't met the perfect Christian yet but they should at least be present in our lives and in our walk. We must also examine the effectiveness or faithfulness of our Christian life. And if we examine these things, we can confirm that we have indeed been called or that we are lacking the qualities and effectiveness of one who claims the name of Christ. So as you listen to to Peter today, you may be inclined to think of someone else, someone sitting next to you, someone in your family that's not here. But I encourage you to turn the lens on yourself today. For some of you, God has a word for you today to show you the blind spots in your Christian walk, to further sanctify you and to make you more fruitful in your relationship with him and with others. For for others listening, God has a word for you today, maybe to show you that you've never called upon him in saving faith. And I would pray for each of you that you would allow God's word to teach you today and to penetrate your hearts with his truth. So let's pray before we get into our text. Father, we do thank you for all that you have done. Lord, I pray that you give us a glimpse of your glory today. Show us Jesus. And Lord, for those who uh, do not have spiritual ears to hear today, Lord, I pray that you would awaken them. Awaken them by your spirit, that they might see Jesus for the first time today. We pray in his name. Amen. So let's look at verses 5 to 7 at the qualities of the called. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So, so Peter begins verse 5 with the words, for this reason. And If we are a thinking person, and I hope we are, We have to ask the question, for what reason? And we just saw that in verses 3 to 4. Because his divine power has granted us to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things have been granted by him. Because he has called us to his own glory and excellence. Because he's granted us his very great and precious promises. Because he's allowed us to be partakers of his nature, the divine nature. He's allowed us to escape the corruption of sinful desire. Those are great reasons. Because of all of his God-given blessings and promises that we just saw, one who has experienced these blessings or promises cannot remain indifferent or satisfied with who he was before experiencing those things. So before listing uh, these qualities of a person who's been called by God, Peter lays out a qualifier to his readers. He says, Make every effort. Now, now, in a day when people don't like hard work and like things handed to them for free, this is an unwelcome term, isn't it? Make every effort. Work hard. Another way you could say it is give your all to these things and maximize the effort and dedication to these things. Now, some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have treated Jesus as someone or, or worse yet, something that we just sort of add to the busy schedule. You've got this agenda. It's like, we'll throw Jesus in here. I've got 20 minutes of... Jesus' time. We don't live our lives under the banner of Jesus gave it all, all to him I owe. We we live more like he owes us something. The Christian life is not lived to the glory of God without gratitude-fueled effort. Don't hear me say working your way to earn his favor, but gratitude-fueled effort. Peter's list of qualification begins with faith and ends with love. Now, I believe these are very intentional bookends, beginning with faith and ending with love. Everything in between, I'm not sure it's so progressive, but let's begin with faith. This is the one thing in this list of qualities that does not require effort. Now let me qualify that statement so you don't think I'm crazy. There are things we can do that will help grow our faith, but the initial faith we have in Christ is a gift from above. Our gift of salvation, that initial gift of faith, the Apostle Paul says it well in Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Now I know this goes against everything that's American and, and human nature for that matter. We want to be masters of our domain. We've been trained to succeed and then say, look what I did. Look what I achieved. But God knew we would want to do that. He knows you. He knows me. He said, no, you will not take the credit for this gift. He said, salvation and faith required to obtain that salvation are 100% my work, not yours. I am the author of salvation, he would say. The only thing you and I bring to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. I can't remember who said that first, so I'll just take it. Eventually you stop quoting people and it's like, hey, I, I, I came up with this great thing. You quote me one day on that one. <laughs> Look, some of you still don't like that concept when you're here, but I'm here to tell you that it's pride causing us to want to be co-redeemers of our souls. <laughs> Ephesians also teaches us that we were dead, dead in our trespasses. Here's the one thing about dead people. They don't respond. Go, go to the graveyard and try to have a conversation with someone in the grave. You will quickly find out it is a monologue and not a dialogue. Unless you possess the power to breathe life back into the human, that will be the case. So it is with us. God must breathe life into our dead spirits before we can even respond in faith. That's what happens in the glorious act of regeneration when the Holy Spirit transforms us from death. life spiritually and i'll say this until and unless god regenerates us we cannot and will not respond in faith but when he does suddenly our spirits are awakened and we see jesus as our rescuer we, we see him as redeemer rescuer not as not simply as a good guy a good teacher or some mythical religious figure that we don't know what to do with in that moment god changes the disposition of our hearts Toward him from one of hatred or indifference to one of love and worship. If we have any love at all for Jesus, it is because God gave us that love when He gave us faith in Him. And for that, we should be the most thankful of all people. So, after God does His monergistic work in salvation, that's where the effort comes in for the believer. The work of sanctification of the believer is a synergistic effort, effort uh, one where we walk hand in hand with God to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Now, some of us have been Christians for many, many years, but haven't put forth effort required to grow in our faith. We, we hide behind the grace that saved us, being deceived that effort and good works have no place in the Christian life. They have no place in the salvation of the believer, but they do have a place in the Christian life. Now, many times God will use, look around, your Christian brothers and sisters as agents to exhort us to move forward in that process of sanctification. Don't ignore that gift or war against it if God has put a brother or sister in your life who wants to help you grow in in your faith. It's not an attack. Well, it could be if you get the wrong guy or girl. But hopefully you have trusted brothers and sisters in here that you can go to to grow where you're you're weak. In fact, I I would even go as far as to say, ask for help from a brother and sister if you're stagnating in in an area of your faith. So Peter then tells his readers to supplement this faith with virtue. Virtue is the root of the word virtuoso. La- last year, sorry, showing my age and my musical genre, we lost one of the greatest guitarists of all time to cancer. Edward Van Halen was nothing short of a virtuoso. He had an amazing level of god-given talent and technical ability when it came to the guitar. His influence permeates thousands of guitarists in the world. Although he had a nat- lot of natural ability, constantly practiced and improved his skills, worked inventing various things. Now, in classical Greek, the word Peter uses for virtue means God-given ability to f- perform heroic deeds. It's a word that indicates the ability to stand out with moral excellence and perform deeds of excellence. Living a life of virtue is something that the Christian must strive to do. But we don't do it apart from God's power and ability. Again, this is not a striving In human strength, this is a striving with the power of the Spirit behind us. With the lines of morality being blurred further and further in our society, sometimes it can be difficult for us to discern what is a virtuous life. What is virtue? It's been skewed, but we have truth that has not changed. Peter gives some assistance. He says we are to supplement our virtue with knowledge. What better way to understand what it is to live a virtuous life than to know the standard by which God expects us to live that life? The number of biblically illiterate Christians is growing at an astronomical rate. Our volunteer pre- we had a volunteer appreciation dinner on Friday night, and I did a Bible trivia, which I sent the questions to somebody, and they said, these are too hard. So I was like, all right, you're on my staff. That's an unacceptable answer. <laughs> so we did this during dessert, and I was surprised at how many questions people couldn't answer. Well, they could answer them, just not correctly. Of course, one of my quick-witted volunteers fires back and says, well, our lack of Bible knowledge is an indication of the teaching. (laughs) It's like, dang. (laughs) All right, got to wrap this night up, finish your desserts up. But sometimes Christians don't like to talk about doctrine, but instead want to talk about our relationship with Jesus, which is vitally important. But how do we truly know who Jesus is and what he expects in that relationship if we don't know the doctrine he preached and passed down to his apostles? We don't read the Bible for information, but for transformation, and transformation begins with knowledge in our heads that leads to heart change. If we don't add knowledge to the equation, we'll be in danger of worshiping a God of our own creation. The God we will likely create will be made in our image or the image of the world. I've hung out with me enough to know I don't want a God in my image, and I've hung out in the world enough I know I don't want a God in that, its image. Knowledge in the right hands can be a very good thing, but knowledge can also be dangerous, can't it? We we can believe ourselves to know so much that we are above others and develop a sort of spiritual arrogance. The great enemy threatening the church in Peter's time was was likely Gnostic heresy. The Gnostics claimed to have a superior knowledge above and beyond what the, the apostles possessed, a knowledge gained through direct mystical perception rather than by diligent thinking. I'll say this you can only know, truly know God by knowing his word. But head knowledge isn't worth much unless there's a changed heart that goes with that head knowledge. Peter tells his readers to supplement this knowledge with self control. If we know what to do but we don't do it, what good is it? Similarly, if we know what not to do and yet we still do it, what good is that knowledge that we have of it? Think about an athlete who is training for a big competition. Now, except for maybe the U.S. men's Olympic curling team, who look like some dudes I met out at the brewery. (laughs) Athletes must exercise great self-restraint and self-discipline when it comes to nutrition and training if they hope to win. I I know most of us aren't competitive athletes, but a lot of you are in the military, so you can relate to the rigors of discipline and training, I think. Let's apply this to something we can all relate to, health. How many of us know exactly what it what we're supposed to do when it comes to our health. Just all you got to do is exercise and eat right. Piece of cake, right? Piece of cake is the problem. (laughs) So, you know, guilty as charged, but but the same principles apply in our spiritual lives as well. God has given us plenty of knowledge on how to live the Christian life, but we lack self-control. We allow the passions of our flesh and bodily desires to win battles day after day Instead of submitting ourselves to God's rule. Now, from personal experience, when I continually fail to exercise self control in an area of my Christian life and it leads me to sin, I end up in despair. I don't know about you, but when I fall into sin, it leads me to despair, sometimes even depression. But I will tell you this if you are convicted of your sin, it is a good thing. when, When your conscience is seared, you don't feel bad when you lose control and sin. That's an even bigger problem. When it becomes easy for you to sin, look out. I would argue that every one of us listening here has at least one area in our lives where we lack self-control. That's why God has again given us brothers and sisters in the local church. God has saved us individually, but he didn't save us into isolation. He didn't save us to individualism. He put us together to sharpen one another like iron sharpens iron. And I encourage you, again, to cry out to God for help in exercising self-control where you're struggling, but don't stop there. Get into a deep discipleship relationship with another brother or sister in Christ. One one or two people who can exhort you, strengthen you in God's word and, and in what he wants for you. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So we need those brothers and sisters who can hold us up, and help us to make it through the long haul of this life. And that's why Peter tells us that we are to supplement self-control with steadfastness. Another word for steadfastness is perseverance. If you are a Christian, you will, not might, face temptation and trials. But in God's strength, you can patiently endure those times of temptation and trial. Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure endure it. Virtue, guided by self-control and knowledge, will allow you to endure anything the enemy throws at you. Anything. Peter goes on to say that we are to supplement this steadfastness with godliness. Now, Now, although we patiently endure as we grow, we must approach our sanctification with some level of urgency. Patience, but urgency. To to exhibit the quality of godliness is to live in reverence to God and to strive by the power of the Spirit to be obedient. You, You and I will never be perfect, but we're to become more and more conformed to the image of Christ as we walk in faith with Him. It's not that we don't have the resources to make this happen. God has graciously given us every spiritual resource in this area. We just don't make use of the resources God has given us, if we're honest with ourselves. He's given us himself. He's given us his word, and he's also given us again. I know I keep pointing to it, but this faith family right here to help you grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of Jesus. So I'd like to address these last two qualities of one who's been called together. Um, I would like to address them together. We're, We're to supplement our godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affa- our brotherly affection with love. So when godliness is, with, is, is within us, we can't help but show brotherly affection, or we could say brotherly kindness and love. You've heard it said that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You've probably heard that one before. How many Christians do you know, though, that know a ton of Scripture, tons of knowledge, are some of the nastiest, angriest, most judgmental people you've encountered... And you go, why, how? Sometimes they're even mean and nasty to the people in their own household. Just a word for husbands and wives. Remember, in addition to having a marriage relationship, husbands and wives, you also have a relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ. At multiple levels, you are to model Christ's love in your marital relationship. And a quick word for parents today. Men, speak specifically to men. Men. Do you want your daughters to marry someone who loves her, shows her respect, and treats her as one of God's daughters? Then why do you believe that's going to happen when you don't treat your wife that way? Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Christ will give you the ability to do it, but it will take effort on your part. Wives didn't want to leave you out. Do you want your sons? to marry women who love and respect them. Why would you believe that's going to happen when you don't treat your husband in that way? Respect your husband's wives. uh, But husbands, earn that respect by loving your wives with the sacrificial love of Christ. The marriage relationship is one of mutual submission under the authority of Christ, but it doesn't stop just in the marriage relationship. Parents, discipline your children, but do not exasperate and discourage them. Show them glimpses of the love of a heavenly father with your spouse and with them. Model repentance. Ask forgiveness when you blow it with them. This is not a sign of weakness. It's, in fact, strength. They don't get the upper hand. They learn of a God who loves them and a parent who loves them. It shows them that you trust God with them. But brotherly kindness and love are not necessarily only in our biological relationships. It's through Christ's loving sacrifice on the cross that God brought us together as a family called the church. Just as Israel was to point the nations to God in the Old Testament, we are to point the nations to Jesus. But if the world doesn't see brotherly kindness and love within the church, how will they see Christ in us? You obviously can't influence what happens at churches throughout the world, but you can influence what happens at Risen Church you can impact what happens at Virginia Beach and through all the churches that you support. So let me ask you this question. How many of us treat our church family with the same importance that we treat our biological families? One way we show love is being present together with one another. Some of us have treated fellowship with the body of Christ and the gathering of the saints as an optional part of life that happens when it's convenient for us. But sometimes I don't think we realize our absence doesn't just hurt us, it hurts the body. The body's missing parts. And I know your pastors love each and every one of you because Christ first loved you, but they also love you because they're brothers and sisters in Christ, and they love shepherding you. So now that we understand the qualities that mark one who's been called by God, how do we leverage those qualities to make kingdom impacts? Let's let's see what Peter has to say about the effectiveness of those who've been called, verses 8 to 9. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you feel unfruitful spiritually, or if you're going through a dry season in your walk with Christ, God has given us instruction to roll up our sleeves and get to work. Again, I need to emphasize, I'm not telling you to somehow work to make yourself right with God. Jesus took care of that on the cross, on your behalf. But Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is telling us that sanctification does indeed take effort. If you want to be effective and fruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must have these qualities and be increasing in them, he says. Now, I understand there isn't one, one of us in here who's mastered all of these perfectly, nor will we ever. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't make every effort. Grow in holiness and grow in obedience to God's commands. I grew up in a small town in Maryland that was big on football. And to this day, they win a lot of state championships. There's nothing much there but prisons and football. People my age routinely go back for this big homecoming game every year, somehow attempting to relive the glory of the day when they played football. They were cheerleaders or they were just fans up there drinking a beer in the crowd. And I can imagine these people still recount the big game in 1988 when they came back from certain defeats, sealed the victory, and won the state championship. But, but they live in the past, but because for them it's the best time of their lives. Their greatest stories are in the past. Now, if the greatest stories of how God has worked in your life and used you are in the past, that should be a good wake up call for you. Peter says, Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. Take a moment to think through the timeline of your Christian life. Sure, there's going to be dips and and divots and places where you fall, but where is your Christian life? What's the trajectory of your Christian life? Were you at one time more zealous for the things of the Christian faith? Excited for anyone and everyone to know how Christ was working in your life? You know, when you have that new Christian zeal and you're fired up but you don't have the knowledge and you just say stupid things, then you get mature, you lose that zeal, and now you can you can talk all kinds of theology, but your zeal went away. We need to fuse that together. But was there a time when you were more interested in others discovering the same truth that brought you to saving faith? Think about that for a moment. Just think honestly inside your, your heart. Is, Maybe you've gotten complacent in your faith. You're, you're perfectly happy just growing in knowledge. But you've become numb to the fact that you encounter dozens of people each day who are heading toward the finish line without saving faith in Christ. Worship, maybe you are perfectly happy with where you are today, not even growing in your own personal relationship with Christ. In John 15:5, Jesus said, "'I am the vine, you are the branches.'" Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Christian, I'll say this to you. If you want to live a vibrant life of faith and be effective for God's kingdom, stay close to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Practice these qualities. Practice may not make perfect in this case, but it will make you more effective in your faith. But Be careful not to become so nearsighted on what's going on that you become blind effectively, losing sight of your first love in Christ, losing sight of his purpose for your life, and losing sight of the mission to which he has called you. Now that brings us to the most important question of the day, and of your life for that matter. Has he called you? Let's look at our final point as we examine the confirmation of our calling in verses 10 to 11. Verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as Peter concludes his teaching in this section, he draws us into the deep theological waters of the doctrine of election. Now recall, Peter's first letter was addressed to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now he tells these same folks to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Now I realize some of us already struggle enough with the idea earlier that we don't get to take final credit for our own salvation. How un-American of God. How un-American of Peter to espouse such a concept that that God is sovereign and has final authority over salvation. So why should we go deeper into the doctrine of election? It just seems, seems deep. Because it's in the Bible and it's in our text today. Just because it makes our head hurt or we struggle to understand it does not mean we shouldn't study it if it's in God's Word. Though we don't have time for an exhaustive study this morning. Is there a clock over there? Okay. I would argue that if we understand this doctrine to the best of our human ability, it is a faith-building doctrine that drips with the grace of God. Jesus himself addressed this doctrine with his disciples, and for our benefit, so for that reason alone, we should study and take it seriously. Now, regarding the apostles, Peter wasn't the only one who taught on this doctrine. Paul also addressed the doctrine of election quite extensively in his writings, primarily in Romans and Ephesians. So in Ephesians 1, after opening up with this, this grand statement about how God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Paul says in verse 3, even... As he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And Paul goes on after speaking of the grace of God and salvation and the majesty of Christ, Paul goes on in verse 11 to say, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. By his eternal decree and will, God has chosen a people for himself from before the foundations of the earth. And and unlike fallen humans, God does not change his mind. So we can believe him with absolute certainty. Uh, Granted, we can't all understand all the mechanics behind this. I'm an engineer, so I try to understand all the mechanics. In the end, there's mystery. But we can know enough to be encouraged by it today. If God left it up to mankind, not one of us would choose him. I'm not arguing against man's free will, but in our free will, we will never choose God apart from the transformative work of the Holy Spirit. We will only choose sin and rebellion. Sometimes I hear teachers paint this picture of people running towards God and God preventing them, sort of swatting them away like, nope, you can't come. You can't come, rejecting this desire to be saved. In this caricature still, others are running away from Him but he forces them against their will. Sorry, you've got to come even though you don't want to. But the actual picture, and I'm sure it's been presented to you before, looks much different than this one. Every one of us is running away from God in our unregenerate state. But by grace, he changes the disposition of our hearts toward him, transforming our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh that desire his love and salvation. When God chooses to save someone, his will cannot be thwarted, but it's not because he's cruel. It's because he's full of amazing, saving grace, desiring to save the sinner from from death, from rebellion, and from wrath. Now, in light of this, let's talk about what Peter says regarding our need to be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. Peter wants us to examine ourselves to be sure we are in the faith. There is no question more important in the life of a human being than one we can ask about our eternal standing with God. Am I saved? Would you agree with me? Can I have assurance of that salvation? Now, with regard to assurance of that salvation, there are four types of people who might ask that question. Number one, saved people who know they are saved. Try to get these categories done because I'm going to talk about them a little more. Saved people who are unsure if they are saved. Unsaved people, people who are sure they are saved, and unsaved people who know they are unsaved. God wants us to have assurance of our salvation if we are indeed saved, or assurance that we need to be saved if we are not. So let's start with those who, who are saved and know they are saved. This is someone who has a right relationship with God, a right understanding of salvation. If you're among this group, you understand the gospel message. You understand that you can't atone for your sin and that Jesus' finished work on the cross was necessary. necessary to rescue you, and to rescue you from God's wrath. This isn't something something you simply understand, though. You've trusted in the finished work of Christ. When you look at the qualities of one who is called today, you know that although not perfect in the practice of them, that you do possess them. And you are, in fact, increasing in them. Now, for those who are saved but are unsure, they are saved. You truly understand the gospel message, maybe. You believe in your heart, that you've trusted Christ, but you go back and forth, struggling with assurance. You let your feelings govern you. I have a word for you today. Truth. Truth trumps feelings every time. God's truth about who you are hasn't changed just because you feel distant from Him on a particular day or in a given moment. He is not distancing Himself from you. He's been there the whole time you felt like he wasn't there. It's you that has distanced yourself from him. But let me ask, if, if this is you, let me ask you this question. Do you love Jesus perfectly? The answer is an obvious, no, because only Jesus can love perfectly. Let me ask you another question. Do you love Jesus as much as you should? Every one of us in this room should answer no. Because unless you can say you love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the answer is no. But the final question, do you love Jesus even a little? I'm talking about the biblical Jesus, not one of your imagination that you've created. This Jesus lived the perfect life you were incapable of living, that Jesus. The one who died a brutal death that you deserved for your sin and rebellion. And the one that rose from death to make entrance to heaven for you. This Jesus calls you to obedience and faith. This Jesus gives you his righteous robes in exchange for the dirty clothes of your sin. If you love this real Jesus even a little, that is only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit transforming your hatred for Jesus or your indifference for Him to love. Peter's readers were facing fear, discouragement, isolation, and persecution. They were unsure of the future, and I'm sure they were at times unsure of their standing with Christ. But back in, in 1 Peter... He encouraged his readers with truth. And I want to encourage you who are saved but struggling with assurance. In fact, any of you who are saved, I want to encourage you with this truth today from 1 Peter. You, think about this, you are a chosen race. If you're a Christian, God had you in mind before he laid the foundations of the earth. He had it in mind to choose to make you part of his forever family. You are a royal priesthood. Jesus is our king, but he is also our high priest. If you're a Christian, you are united to Christ, and you exercise rule alongside him as part of this royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. God chose the nation of Israel to bring forth the Messiah, and if you were a Christian, you've been grafted into his people and are part of this holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. Soak these truths in. The church belongs to Christ. And if you're a Christian, you are, by your new birth, part of his church and part of his possession, you belong to Christ. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Before you became a Christian, you were walking in darkness. But God called you out of that darkness and into his marvelous light and truth that is Jesus. What a glorious truth. You have and I have received citizenship in heaven, For the purpose of proclaiming God's praises, we are witnesses to all he has done. And he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. If you were a Christian, you were floundering out there on your own, and God saved you into a body of believers that he calls his very own adopted people. You are God's people. Once once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In God's economy, no one received injustice when it came to his judgment. Let's get this clear. We either receive mercy or justice. And if you were a Christian, you were deserving of the justice of God's wrath for your sin and rebellion, but he has instead shown you mercy because of his great love for you. That's the best possible news you could hear today. Peter's words to his readers are just as applicable to you who are hearing them this morning. Some of us needed to hear those truths about our identity in Christ this morning. I know I did. I've been a Christian for 20 years, but I sometimes have an identity crisis and forget who I am in Christ. Maybe that's you, too. These glorious truths are for you today. Maybe you haven't been a Christian for quite so long, but you rarely take the time to consider these truths and how they apply to you. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom, a corporate professional, serve in the military, or whatever else, these truths are for for you to consider and to claim this morning. And if we don't grab onto these truths, the Christian life can seem exhausting and downright impossible. Rest in these truths. Rest in the gospel. Rest in Jesus today. So so examine yourselves against these qualities Peter taught taught us today. Your, Your sanctification may not be moving along as fast as you had hoped, but you're moving forward. God wants you to be assured that you are one of his adopted children. Again, I can't emphasize it enough, get into a discipleship relationship with another brother and sister. I guarantee you there's someone in this faith family That will walk alongside of you to help you and assist you to confirm your calling and election. For you who are saved and know it, along with all of those who are saved who are who struggle with assurance, I'll say this to you today: God has a mission for you. We are to reflect His glory, pour in our community to His grace, and make disciples of Jesus. That is our job, and if you're a Christian, that mission includes you. Don't keep this great salvation to yourself. Build relationships with with unbelieving people and tell them about all that God has done in your life, exhorting them to come. Come and join the party. So we've talked about those who are saved, but now let's address those who are unsaved. Let's specifically talk about those who are unsaved but are sure they are saved. This is, to me, the most dangerous situation. But, But how can it be that someone is certain they're in Christ, but their assurance is false? To, to me, the scariest words in the Bible are, are from Matthew chapter 7. On that day, Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Whew, it's heavy. There are many, plenty of people who have walked an aisle in a church making a profession of faith but not having a possession of faith. There are others who think living a good life or doing good works is all that God requires. Still others have a universalist mindset that thinking all they need to do is die, salvation by death. The same questions Peter answers about our assurance of salvation in today's text can also help us show if we have falsely professed faith. I'll say it again. It is not a profession of faith, but a possession of faith that makes someone a Christian. Examine yourselves against the word of God to see if you have indeed claimed a faith you profess but do not possess. So finally, I'd like to just address the last group of people I talked about, those who are unsaved, and you know you're unsaved. You, you may not understand the gospel message. Maybe you do, but you've rejected it. And I'll say this to you. If you at, at least if you were in this group, you have a right understanding of your position with Christ and your eternal state. I told you earlier that I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that Tracy would be my wife, so I set my eyes upon her and I pursued her until that came to pass. But I want you to know the way I pursued Tracy is nothing compared to the way God is relentlessly pursuing you today. If you're saved and you struggle with that assurance, rest in Him. No, He won't give up on you. He will continue to lovingly reassure you you are one of His children. If on the other hand, you have a defective understanding of salvation and a false assurance of your good standing before God, He is also pursuing you right now to bring you to faith. And I pray right now that He opens your eyes to that fact. You're spiritually blind at this moment, but God wants to open your eyes today. Repent of your sin and embrace the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus today. On the other hand, maybe you're the one who has altogether rejected this gospel message. You aren't saved, and you know it. Your life having true purpose and where you will spend eternity are wholly dependent upon whether you possess saving faith in Jesus Christ. I'm praying for you today that God would change the disposition of your heart and you would repent of your sin and come to Him now. If you hear my words, He is calling to you. He wants to adopt you into His family. He wants to make you a part of a family that will show brotherly kindness and love in Christ. In verse 11 of today's text, Peter said, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Entrance to God's eternal kingdom and riches within it are yours for the taking if you simply repent of your sins, call upon his name in faith, and believe the gospel. I pray you would do that today. Let's pray.